Almighty Father, we worship you this afternoon. We acknowledge that you see and know and understand all things. And we come to you as those who are limited in our sight and our understanding and our knowledge. And we come deeply longing for you to make yourself known to us more and more. We long for you, O oh God. Our hearts thirst for you, our flesh faints for you. As we open your word together, please speak by your spirit. Make yourself known and your son known to us more and more. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. The Christian gospel has three basic trajectories. There is down, up, and out. Down, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he baptizes us with the Holy Spirit who goes deep into us and changes our hearts. There's then up that restored to Jesus and the Spirit. We are made true worshipers who are then restored to the worship-seeking Father. Christ came and suffered, as 1 Peter 3 tells us, that he might bring us to God. And so we are brought back. God's descent leads to our ascent. But there's also out that now, having been filled by the Spirit, existing in the Son, restored to the Father, we are sent out as those who have had our thirst quenched to share the living water with the world that God still loves and in which God is still seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 exhibits all three of these trajectories quite beautifully. Last week, we considered really the downward one of Jesus coming to the well, meeting and interacting with this woman, the restoration to the Father in worship and spirit and in truth. And as we come back to the story today and consider its second half, we'll look at the outward trajectory, that the, the gift that God brings to us in Christ then sends us out to share this gift with the world. This is a passage, in short, about Christian mission. What we have tasted and seen in our own lives, we don't hold on to for ourselves, but we are compelled to go out into the world and to share it with others. So in this text, we'll see first the basic Christian activ activity of Christian mission. Then we'll see secondly, the, the aim of those, the basic aim of those who go on this mission. Then third, we'll see a word about expectations. What should we who take up this basic activity with this basic aim expect? And then finally, we'll see something about the end of Christian mission. So there's activity, aim, expectation, and end. So first, in verses 27 through 30, we will consider the basic activity of Christian mission. This woman encounters Jesus at the well. He engages her. He speaks to her. He unveils her heart. He unveils his own identity to her. And this encounter with him leads to testimony which then again leads to further encounter. In verse 28, we're told that she leaves her water jar behind and she heads back to town to talk with the people of the town about this man. There is a sense in which this detail about leaving her water jar behind, it signifies that she has received the living water. Her thirst has been quenched. And now she is a spring of water gushing out with, gushing over with life and goes to share this life with others. So she shares it with the people of her town. And this is what she says. Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? 
come, see. Those words should ring familiar to us. In chapter 1, Jesus says to the disciples that come inquiring of him, come and see. And then Philip says to his friend Nathaniel, come and see. And this is always the heart of Christian testimony. It's invitational. Come and see this man, this one who did amazing things in my life. One New Testament commentator observes that this woman's testimony is also enthusiastic, honest, and Christ-centered. And as such, it becomes a model for our sharing with the world. Honestly, without enthusiasm, why should others listen? All of us know that the best communicators share or, or communicate a, a passion and an enthusiasm about their subject that helps others take an interest in it as well. Why would we talk to the world about Christ without enthusiasm? This woman clearly has enthusiasm in what she says to the people of the town. Then there is her honesty. This is surprising. And I think indicative of the transformation that has taken place in her life. She went to a well at noon. That was an odd time to go to the well because she was wanting to avoid seeing people. She was ashamed and shackled by her shame. Now, instead of avoiding them, she runs back to town and proclaims news about this encounter that she had with this man. And in that proclamation, she actually draws attention to her shady past. See a man who told me everything I ever did. Most of them actually probably already knew a number of the things that this woman had done. But now she's not afraid to draw attention to them and to mention them. Why? Because she's met Jesus. She's encountered this one who has changed her life. She's taken a drink of the living water. And that transforms her relationship to her failures and her shortcomings. No longer are these places that hold her bound in despair or failure or shame, but instead they have become opportunities for her to magnify the grace and mercy of this one that she's just encountered. That's a common feature in the testimony of a Christian believer. Think of Paul who reflected again and again on the fact that he had once persecuted the church of God. But having met Jesus, having had his life transformed, he can now point back to that moment in his life and say, see, God is so merciful that he would reach someone like me. His grace is so powerful that it would change someone like me. And that's what this woman is doing here. Using her failures, pointing to the fact that he told her everything that she had ever done as a sign of who this powerful God is. And then there is her Christ focus. She speaks of this man who met her at a well. Could this be the Christ? Is how she ends her testimony. Certainly, we would like her to be more convinced about the identity of Jesus, more certain. But God uses this seemingly insignificant woman and her very brief testimony in a powerful way nonetheless. She points to this man and asks, could he be the Christ? She's Christ-centered in her proclamation. And the townspeople, they respond immediately in verse 30. They come out of the town and they make their way to go and see Jesus. It's a beautiful testimony, really. She points to Jesus. She says, come and see. And then people follow. They go and they see. Isn't that the job of our testimony? Her testimony is grounded, though. It's, it's arising out of her encounter. And this is an important point to dwell upon for a few minutes. Encounter matters. Peter says this so well in Acts chapter 4, verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
Without the seeing and the hearing, there would be no powerful speaking. Have you seen him? Have you heard him? Have you encountered him as the apostles had and as this woman has? As the one full of grace, he turned water into wine at a wedding. He offers this woman the gift of God, living water. But also the one full of truth. He turns over the tables in the temple and he says to this woman, go call your husband. This is the foundational encounter, the encounter of the sinner with the full of grace and truth savior. That is the basic encounter of the Christian life. Think of how overwhelmed she must have been in this moment. This man, this Jewish man, met her at a well and didn't ignore her. He didn't scold her. He didn't judge her. Instead, he engages her and he offers this amazing gift to her, a gift that would quench her thirst. He says, you'll never thirst again if you drink of this living water. And he reveals her true identity, his true identity to her. To her. Think about it. No wonder she was overflowing with enthusiasm. He met me. He talked with me. He knows me. One as outcast and ashamed as I am, he met me. It's that very personal sense of encounter with Jesus that fuels her testimony to the town. Jesus is not an idea. He's not a theory or a principle. He's not, he's not something, a concept to ponder and to parse. He is a savior to be known and to be encountered personally and in our experience. To speak of Jesus to the world is to be personal. It is to talk of how he has met us in our lives as he met this woman at the well. For many of us, there is a distinct first encounter, as with this woman, as with Paul, in the most dramatic of ways on the Damascus Road. And that is an important story to tell. But that encounter, whether dramatic or not, leads to additional encounters, to a deeper knowing and experience of Jesus, from which our testimony continues to flow, continues to remain enthusiastic and honest and fresh. And this ongoing encounter is critical if we only have the first encounter, then our testimony as the years pass can become distant and dry and uninspired. Almost when we share it as if we're not really sure that we believe this anymore. We're not really that convinced of its relevance and truth and power anymore. It is the subsequent and ongoing encounters of a life lived with the living King Jesus that root our testimony in an ongoing immediacy of the Christ the Savior in our lives, the one full of grace and truth. There is a danger of our testimony losing its honesty and enthusiasm if we lose the immediacy of Jesus in our lives. In his 1928 book, Christ at the Round Table, E. Stanley Jones, the Methodist missionary to India, writes about gathering groups of people in table discussions to talk about their experience with religion. And he speaks about the problem this created for a Christian at one point. He says this, in one of our roundtables, one of the Christians began to narrate the life of Jesus and to semi-preach. A Hindu judge turned to him and said, we are fairly familiar with the events you are narrating. You tell us what you have found. This Christian who had been so accustomed to preaching something outside himself was brought up face to face with the demand that the gospel not be something passed on from a book to another without going through the stream of one's own experience and life, that it must come up out of the soul. I wonder how much of our testimony has bypassed 
the soul. Bypass the experience, the lived reality of the person of Jesus. Perhaps it's something that our parents have taught us, but that doesn't really mean that much, much to us personally and doesn't affect how we live our lives. Perhaps it's something that we share out of a sense of duty or obligation. That certainly was not present in this Samaritan woman's encounter with her townspeople. Her testimony flowed from the soul, from her experience and her encounter with the living Jesus and from having tasted of the living water. Before we move to our, our second point, let me ask, do we encounter him? Do we meet this Jesus still this day? I have a mentor and friend who spent much of his early years in ministry traveling across Europe to encourage missionary pastors in their work. And after hundreds of conversations, he came to discover that most of these pastors would say something like this to him. I have not had a meaningful encounter with Jesus in as long as I can remember. They had been enlisted in his service, but in their outward outpouring in his service, they had lost touch with the one that they were serving. And I say how tragic that is, but how common it is as well. Do we still encounter him in his word, in prayer, in worship, in and among the community of God's people? There are so many ways that we can encounter him. Sometimes we hear that still small voice. Sometimes it's a loud voice of conviction. Other times it's a genuine peace that we're given in the midst of trial. Sometimes we encounter him in the groanings too deep for words. As we wrestle with God in the midst of heartache and challenging circumstances and suffering and trial. But he is there. He is there to be encountered. And this encounter fuels our testimony. If you're struggling with this this evening, remember that this living Jesus longs to pour out his life upon us. He longs to meet with us. Ask him. Ask him to do so. Be bold in your asking. Ask him to show himself and to communicate his love to you in, in new ways that you can understand, in tangible ways that you can grasp. And he will be quick to do so. So we not only see the basic activity of Christian mission, testimony fueled by encounter, but secondly, in verses 31 through 34, we see the basic aim of the one on mission. The camera shifts. We're no longer with the Samaritan woman and her townspeople, but now we're with Jesus and his disciples who have come back from town. And in a similar fashion as Jesus did with the woman at the well talking about water, Jesus now speaks to his disciples about food on a deeper level than they can readily grasp. They urge him in verse 31, Rabbi, eat something. And remember in verse 8, we're told that they went into the town to buy food. His response in verse 32, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They wonder in verse 33 if someone has given him food to eat that they didn't know about. And then Jesus speaks plainly in verse 34. My food, he says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That is his aim. And that is to be our aim as well. Jesus refers to his father as the one who has sent him. And this understanding of being sent is important and shapes Jesus's own mission. When my wife Mandy was nine years old, she would often be dropped off by her mom at the grocery store to go in and get the family's groceries for the week. Her mom at that time was battling cancer and was too weak 
to go into the store and get the groceries herself. So Mandy was sent in with a mission, and that's what she set out to accomplish. Most nine-year-olds in a grocery store, at least that I know, they'd be interested in the candy aisle or what could entertain them. But that wasn't what she was to be tied up with. She was there with a list to meet the, the demands of the moment, to accomplish that for which she had been sent into the store by her mom. And Jesus is saying something similar about his own mission. My father has sent me. And my aim, my food, is to do his will, to accomplish or to complete, to finish his work. That is what Jesus says my life is about. I would suggest to you that we too have been sent by God, the God, on mission, the God of mission. We've been sent to Boston, to our spouses, our roommates, to our neighborhoods, our particular streets, to our vocations, our businesses, our institutions. We may think that we're in all of those places because we have chosen to be there, because we've worked hard or we've done these things and we've made this choice. And that is, of course, true at one level. But at a much deeper level, for those of us in Christ, it is absolutely true that the sovereign God in his providence has sent us particularly to these places and people. And he sent us there with a purpose and with a mission. Remember after his resurrection what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. You are sent as I was sent. You are now being sent by me. And our basic aim as those who are sent is to please the one who has sent us. It is to do his will and to accomplish his work. By calling this aim his food, Jesus is saying something rather deep here. He's saying that this kind of living is deeply satisfying. Not just to our soul, but in some ways to our bodies as well. We get the opposite of this for us in the Psalms. We see a picture of someone in sin and how living that life in sin, in a sense rejecting the will of God, contrary to his will, seems to have an effect upon their physical health. So Psalm 31 verse 10, my strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Strength failing bones wasting away to reject the will of God is to fall apart in soul and body but what Jesus is saying here is the exact opposite of that to do God's will is deeply satisfying to both the soul and the body it is his food and this is what Jesus does so in the high priestly prayer his final prayer the night before he was crucified chapter 17 verse 4 I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do and then perhaps most well-known of all, when he's hanging on the cross in John 19, verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished, mission accomplished. I've come and I've done that which I was sent to do. What is it that fills Jesus up? What satisfies him? It is interestingly and paradoxically pouring out his life even to the point of death. My food, we can hear Jesus say, what fills me up is giving away my life in love. It's what the Father sent me for, and that's what I've come to do. Is it any wonder then that he calls us to do the very same thing? We may not always have the privilege of knowing God's specific will in every particular situation and context in which we find ourselves, but we do always know his general will for us, his call upon our lives, is to pour our lives out in love for the needs of our world and those around us. Our mission is a cross-shaped mission. And it's only living in this way, Jesus says, that you will be filled. 
Try to save your life, he says, and you'll lose it. But lose your life for my sake and for the gospel and you will save it. You will be filled. This is our basic aim in every context, in business, in academia, in the hospitality industry, at home, at school, as a member of our community. It is to love, which means to pour our lives out. This is the way of our king. This is the will of him who sent us. This is our food, which most deeply satisfies. So we've seen the basic activity of Christian mission. We've looked at the basic aim. Now, thirdly, let's get a word about expectations, because this is where Jesus turns next with his disciples in verses 35 through 38. In verse 35, Jesus repeats a popular proverb of the day, four months more and then the harvest. We're not really sure where it comes from, but he refutes its application to his mission. That's why he brings this proverb up. The meaning of this proverb is a bit like the proverb in our day. Rome wasn't built in a day. This takes time. It takes the long-term view. But Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to be in this work of mine in the moment that we're living it. He says to his, uh, his disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest or they are white for harvest. The harvest is now. It's here. It's happening now. We cannot help but think that when Jesus is saying this to his disciples and he says, open your eyes, he's saying, look at all those people who are coming out of the village to meet me at the well. The harvest is now. It's happening. People are coming. The life of the kingdom is being opened up. The living water is being offered to the world. Verse 36, even now or already, the reaper draws his wages, and even now he harvests the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. This is happening now. The harvest is upon us. It's not four months from now, Jesus is saying to his disciples. It's now. This is not a time of patience and waiting. This is the time to harvest. This is the time to go out into the fields and bring a harvest back and to rejoice. In verses 37 and 38, he drives home a similar point. First, Affirming another proverb, one sows and another reaps. And then he tells them, he sent them to reap that which they have not worked for. Verse 38, others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. We're not entirely sure who the others are. There are a lot of different uh, speculations about this. Many think that the, the others are the prophets ending somewhat in John the Baptist who have come before Jesus and the kingdom breaks in. That might make sense. But there's another intriguing possibility. What if the others are the seeking father, the sacrificing son, and the spirit of living water? The father, the son, and the spirit who are hard at work and have been hard at work in seeking the salvation of the world. We enter into the labor of God himself, the triune God, and his work in the hearts of others as we go out and bear witness and testify and live lives of love. As a result of the ongoing work of God, the expectation of Christian mission is one of fruitfulness and harvest. And I wonder simply, is that our expectation today? It seems to be the Apostle Paul's as he proclaims the gospel. I mean, think about how difficult his task was. He was going into these cities in the Greco-Roman Empire. He was proclaiming a Messiah, a king who had been crucified and raised from the dead. He says, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And yet as he proclaims that gospel message, as he speaks about his own encounter with the living Christ, people come to faith. They're transformed. They're baptized. They're made new. They're filled by the Spirit. 
Paul expects a great harvest. And that's why he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. This gospel is changing lives. I've seen it change my own life. I've seen it change the lives of those to whom I preach. And he's saying, this is what I expect. Consider this woman's experience. She met Jesus at a well. She goes back to her town. She says a simple Christ-focused testimony and everybody starts to respond and they run out of the town to meet Jesus. What do we expect? Do we believe that God has gone before us in this work? I love what Paul is told in a vision one night in Corinth as he's on his missionary work there in wrestling. Acts 18, 9. Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city, many in this city who are my people. What are our expectations as we think about testifying to our encounter with Jesus? This doesn't mean, of course, that there won't be opposition. There is. That is a standard experience on Christian mission, whether here at home or abroad. But we should never interpret opposition or hostility as a lack of opportunity or as somehow the fact that God is not present. Again, I go to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, he says. For a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. If it was me, I'd say there are many adversaries, therefore the door has shut. But Paul says, no, no, a wide door for effective work is opened, and there are many adversaries. The presence of adversaries is never an indicator that God is not present, or that the door is not open, or that the fruitfulness should not be expected. Fields are ripe for harvest. What is our expectation of being on mission? I wonder if some of us have more expectations for our sports teams, especially here in New England, than we do for the work of Christian mission. Or if some of us have more expectations for the return on our portfolio than we do for God's work in Christian mission. Matthew 9, 37 and 38, a related text Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I just wonder, do we believe that? Do we believe that the harvest is still plentiful, even here in Boston and certainly around the world? Do we believe that the reapers will rejoice with the sowers? Do we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have gone before us to ready the harvest? This doesn't mean that we will always see the fruit of our labors. But it does mean that our labors will always bear fruit. Consider the frequent testimony of Muslims in the Muslim world encountering Jesus in a dream long before they meet a Christian. Consider again the Samaritan woman's experience. Consider former Park Street Church missionaries Paul and Michelle Martindale who spent years working in a North African Muslim country where there are now over 30,000 Christian believers linked to the work that they helped to begin many decades ago. Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling you and he's telling me to raise our expectations as we go on mission. Finally and briefly, we see the end of Christian mission in verses 39 to 42. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, he told me everything I ever did. They believed. 
they entrusted themselves to Jesus, this king. Because of this woman's, sometimes we might think inadequate testimony. No, not inadequate at all. God used it powerfully. The end of Christian mission is people coming to faith, coming to believe and to entrust their lives to Jesus. But it continues, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. You see what happens? She testifies. They believe. And then they come because she said, come and see. They, they took up her invitation and they came to him. So they could have their own encounter with Jesus. And in their own encounter with Jesus, more of them came to have faith and to trust and to believe. And those who already believe now believe not just because of her testimony, they go on to say in verse 42, but because they had heard his own words. They'd had their own experience and encounter with this living king. And they'd come to believe. What began with the woman's testimony, what may begin with your testimony or my testimony into this world, will always be expanded and strengthened by an encounter with Christ himself in his word and his people in worship. He is the living Christ who loves to meet his people and give to them more of himself. And direct encounters with him will lead to the greatest of insights, which we see here as our text comes to a close. Remember, the theme of Jesus' identity has been woven throughout this encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it comes here to its fullest flower in verse 42. This man, the Samaritans say, really, truly is the Savior of the world. The end of Christian mission is a true harvest. People encountering Jesus and trusting themselves to him, remaining with him, asking him, coming to see him, confessing then his identity as the savior of the world. Who in that day was known as the savior of the world? It was a title given to Caesar. Caesar was the one who was the true hope for change, for liberation, for peace, for blessing, for salvation. And yet the early Christians defy that expectation and say, no, no, no. The true savior of the world is this Jesus that this woman met at the well that we then just encountered based on her testimony. He is the one on whom our hopes for liberation, for peace, for joy, for salvation, for rescue, for flourishing, really, truly, and fully rest. That was the testimony of the early church for the first several centuries. And that testimony eventually toppled Caesar. Jesus is the savior of the world. This is the end of Christian mission. It is to confess Jesus as he truly is the savior of the world. This one who asked this ashamed woman at the well for a drink. Can you believe it? She's, she's got to be, her mind is blown. He encountered her. He wants to encounter you and me. Not just one time a long time ago, but today, this week in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a political season of unrest and division, in the middle of racial tension, he wants to meet you and me, that we might know him more deeply, that we might be sent out on mission with one basic activity, testify, with one basic aim, to love, to accomplish his will. That is our food, with great expectations and with the end that more and more people would know this life, this living water that wells up within us and gushes out of us into the world. That's the vision we get, a beautiful vision here in John 4. Let's pray. God, our Father, we cry out to you as those who long to meet your son Jesus again in new and fresh ways in our lives. 
Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Make your son known to us, we pray. In our fellowship, in our prayers, in our worship, in our opening up of scripture, Lord, make yourself known that our mission might be a mission that bears fruit, that we participate in the harvest fields that you have prepared. Oh Lord, embolden us, encourage us, strengthen us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.